Welcome to Drinks Biz, a podcast for the beverage industry in South Africa. I'm Holger Meyer, and in today's show, I talk to Lorna Scott. Lorna is the founder of Enverosh Distillery in Stillby, and she is one of the pioneers in the craft distilling industry in South Africa. And the news just out is that Perna Ricard has invested in her business. So we are very excited to find out more about this deal, more about her story, and how this will influence her business and her brand in future. So welcome to today's show. And with me is the lady of the moment, I think, in the craft spirits industry, Welcome to the show, Lorna. Good morning, Holger. Thank you very much for having me. And where are you now? You say you're in Cape Town. Yes, I'm in Cape Town. I arrived here last night. Um, We're just um, launching our second of my creative collections um, at the Element House. So I've got a three evenings of um, introducing this this new exciting um, product to the to the trade. So just away from home for a bit. Okay, and I just uh, never realized that Stillby was really a long way from Cape Town. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely is. At least four hours these days, especially when you come across the mountain. Yes. You get stuck in traffic. <laughs> and that, that probably ex- explains why I've never visited you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got to remedy that. That's, yeah. uh, that's a, a definitely um, a deal. Yeah, so I think uh, I've been to most craft distilleries in South Africa, certainly to most of the craft breweries, um, and I don't think we've ever met. Um, which well, is, I feel as if I know you because I've you know been following you on um, <laughs> Facebook, so one does get a sense of you know um, a proprietary kind of insight into how people um, you know who people are. So yes. well. It is it is amazing when I can remember when I met the the team from um, Barker and Quinn. You know they they said if yes. it wasn't for Facebook we wouldn't know each other. I and, know it's nuts. How did we communicate before all of this? Well, social how did media? we do it? And how did we start businesses, especially small businesses without uh, social media? I know. Gosh. Yeah. yeah, and you know what the funny thing is, and I have to share this with you. I was listening to a podcast, and I love podcasting, um, and there's a podcast called Liquid Acids. Yeah. Um, so if you search for beverage industry podcasts, that's one of the few ones that comes comes up. And the interesting, Liquid Acids. Liquid hmm. Acids, yes. Yeah. And uh, that particular podcast was about um, what drives mergers and acquisitions in craft spirits. Mm. And... They were talking to a guy called Nick Papa Nicolas, or yeah. Nicola, and he's the VP for Perna Records' new brand ventures. Okay. And when I came back, I think I was listening in gym, I got a message from one of your former uh, colleagues saying that you had just, or that he could now formally tell me about a deal that had happened. So tell us what happened. well you know as with most um most things these things um are not really planned they sort of come about out of the blue and i think perhaps these are the the best kind of serendipitous Mm. um 
um, a, a meetings, as it were. But, you know, they approached me uh, probably about six months ago um, to um, explore the, the, the potential of a, of, um, um, a buy-in. And they and, are um, obviously then Puna Record. Yes, that's right. But at that time, we were. I also had been approached by a couple of others. So it I'm was sure. a, it was just suddenly I was, you know, the 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 girl or the flavor of the month. Mm. Um, and part of what um, I did on my side is to really do my homework to find out who these guys all were. And I think that lies at the core of the start of the, uh, you know, a long six months period of of getting to know each other. That um, I think is probably the most valuable of um, you know if I was to give advice to anybody mm. who gets to a point where you know you are now um, poised as it were to to go to the next level is to really really do your own homework to make sure that you um, you know get in get into bed with a partner that you can go you know the long haul with. Um, so that that was part of it. A, lot, a, a number of the other um, big players just simply didn't feel right. Okay. Um, this is a group of people that think like I do. They've approached all of their, um, you know, their, their partnerships in the same soft way, you know, that they've done with myself in saying that it's your business. We're here to help you. Okay. Um, you know, you plug, it's like plug in where you feel you need us. It's that kind of approach that, that made me realize, yep, maybe it's time to, to do this. Yeah, they, they, I mean, that does sound um, like the ideal partnership, um, and I hope it turns out like that in reality. So what which partnerships are you aware of? I mean, we've recently heard of um, Malfi, and obviously there's Monkey 47. Yes, I mean, they've got quite a few um, new ones, and there's a tequila brand and, and uh, South America, mm. they've, they've looked at a, um, a whole range. I think there's one in, in, in um, something called a rabbit in, in um, America as well, which are all, you know, ones that are currently in the last sort of six months or so that have been um, brought on board. But the, the more um, well-known ones, um, of course, are all the, the, big, the bigger brands, which are the Absolute and, of course, Jamison Whiskey mm. and Shivers and so on. They've got a fairly substantial um, gin portfolio as well, which includes Beef Eater, of course, and as you've mentioned, Monkey 47. Mm. Um, but what they've done differently is that they've, um, you know, they've put um, the, the portfolios together to match the, uh, the super premiums, the, you know, the luxury brands um, and so on. So that you you sort of partner in a group, and um, I'm fortunate to, you know, be put into the 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 the, the luxury basket, as it were. Um, and we're the first brand that they own in Africa. So you know, in in this sense, you know, we we're um, really you know not just stoked but privileged to have been selected out of all of the sub-Saharan countries and and so on to be their first. Um, to kind of represent not just the portfolio, but to open up the market for them in Africa and obviously taking us to to the world now. Mm-hmm. Is a partnership like this, does it mean a lot of money for you and your family or is it, uh, is it more uh, looking at the future? 
Well, no, there's a, a bit of both, but mm. clearly, you know, the confidential information I can't share. Mm, but sure. I mean, yes, there there is um, there is security for me, for me and mm. my family. But I remain a shareholder. Yes. You know, so it's not a buyout at all. And um, the, the partnership is also, um, although there will be obviously representation on, on our board, I remain CEO. So okay. in effect, my entire team stays exactly as they are. Nothing changes in terms of how I run the business. Mm. The only, um, you know, the only bigger opportunity lies primarily with the export market because okay. that's where my focus was and that's how the conversation started to yes. find a partner that could help me take the business global. Yeah. So can you, I mean, have you, I don't know if you if you are aware of it, I mean, a brand like Monkey 47, um, I have been very naughty and reprimanded a lot of times for taking Monkey 47 into the bottle stores. Where, oh, right. Where yeah, I know said, you're not allowed to sell <laughs> no, it no. there. That's right. I mean, you can make your own, you can't make your own rules, but I mean, it is ultimately, it's a, a process of negotiation mm. and it's exactly what I've done. Yeah. So, um, in my, um, on my side, the core pillars that were non-negotiables in, in this um, arrangement is really to ensure that the brand's identity is never compromised, yes. no matter what happens, you know, 20, 30 years from now or beyond. Mm. Um, so being handcrafted yeah. is a core principle of what we're all about. Being in still by is, you know, absolutely not negotiable. We will never be made anywhere else. Um, the supply chain in terms of the ingredients that we grow ourselves, because we, we grow all of our key famous botanicals ourselves, harvested by hand and so on. So, you know, those are all built into um, not just obligations, but commitments. Of, and, um, and they are what you are. That's who we are. I mean, we couldn't be who we are if we didn't subscribe to authenticity. Yeah. And they fully get that. And so, you know, that was one of the the easiest um, points to come to agreement on. Because I think authenticity is what craft brands are all about. And, I mean, for a big spirit company to make a craft brand is not authentic. And it's it's not something that it's hard to... To start it's, to reconcile that, you know, people yeah. often think now suddenly you've got a you know big brother partner and everything's going to be automated and taken to yeah. you know a, a sort of a, a economy of scale um, process. But you don't have to, you know, if you have a vision. And in my case, it's always been from the very beginning because you know we, we grew exponentially anyway on our own. Yes. And so I already had. Uh, all the um, the plans in place, which is really just a plug and play. And in other words, all I do is I I repeat the model that we started with. So we stay with you know small pot stall. We will mm. get another pot stall if I need to. You know when we get to the next point, I'll you know add another small copper pot stall. And I employ more people. We write every label by hand. Each bottle goes through 16 pairs of hands. It's handled 16 times. That excludes the harvesting process and the planting and things. Mm. And I'll just employ more people. So, you know, that's the, the essence of when somebody picks up a bottle of Inverage, they turn the bottle around and somebody has written on the back of that bottle. That will never change. 
Yeah. So I mean, the, the rumors in uh, over the on on the street in Joburg started. Uh, when was it? I think when when you moved to Cool Wines as a distributor, they already said there's no ways you can make so much gin and still buy. It has to be made in Joburg. It's probably made in Joburg already. I know. So you know, this is why you've got to come and see. Come see for yourself. <laughs> But it is possible. It is possible totally if you commit to it. And, you know, clearly, you know, it's not just about the increasing the margins because you really have to keep focused on the integrity. And if you don't do that, you know, I don't think that there is a um, a longevity prospect in your future. Yeah. And and negotiating with a company like Pernod Ricard, I mean, did uh, obviously they there must be something from their side that they're looking for uh, brands to partner with or to invest in because otherwise it would I mean you can't just start a let's call it a fake brand not an authentic brand and expect them to invest in your brand. Well, exactly, and I think from their perspective, we obviously ticked all the boxes, um, and mm. I think the fact that it's. Pernod Ricard is the only, you know, they're they're the second largest in the world, but they're still run by the family. Mm. So it's still a family business. It's how they approach it. Um, And even the way that they create the structures um, is very much family orientated. Um, So it's very much about the people. It's about personalities. Of course, I have to learn to, you know, um, avoid this thing of trying to um, communicate with a, a lot of French people, and my French is kind of non-existent. But the mm. odd thing is, you start speaking English with a French accent after a while, which yeah. is rather odd. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> but that's all part of the learning curve. They have to learn to get some Afrikaans words in there too. <laughs> <laughs> so, is your agreement with Pernod uh, Ricard South Africa or with uh, the French company? No, with Pernod Ricard South Africa, so it's the sub-Saharan yeah. um, division. So, Business. but I'm hoping to, you know, take a a journey up to um, to Paris uh, yeah. sometime in the near future to also, you know, engage with the the home team, and um, you know, so the the invitation, as it were, is there to select where we want to go, and uh, they've got a, a number of divisions. You know, each one of the continents has its own. Um, um, uh, sub, um, not just a region, but an, an office that manages all of that. So it's up to us to, you know, decide a, a collective um, strategy and which countries we want to um, move into, and then we'll work with the local teams. Mm. It really sounds like a dream partnership. Lorna, I first came across your brand. I just finished writing my beer book and I was visiting a craft brewer and he said to me, have you ever tried a craft gin? I said, what is a craft gin? <laughs> obviously, after the craft beer thing, there has to be whatever these next. And I said, yeah. come on, don't. And he, said, and he convinced me that he could taste the difference. So I was staying in Clue Street with my family. My uncle's got an apartment there. And mm-hmm. I stopped at the bottom of Cleef Street, went into that bottle store there and bought a bottle of your Inveros. And that must be five, five years ago. And that was, yeah. my wife was absolutely um, in awe with this beautiful bottle and everything. But, uh, and obviously the experience of sitting in Cleef Street overlooking Cape Town, drink, sipping this beautiful gin. That adds gin. a definite element to it. Yes. Um, 
but when did you start? So your story in a nutshell? Well, my story really started um, long before I actually even made the gin. Um, I was still in politics when the idea started to sort of um, slowly take form. Um, and the, 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 it didn't move straight into making gin. Um, I always say, of course, that we ended up making gin because I like gin. So mm. it was almost a natural gravitation in that direction. But the the true inspiration behind all of this started when I was still in politics. I was the local mayor uh, or deputy mayor for the municipality. And um, I was trying to find um, ways of creating a destination from a tourist perspective because of the incredible, you know, high unemployment mm. rate and so on. And simply discovered the fact that, you know, within, uh, you know, 10, 15 kilometers of my um, home at the time, that we had these astonishing, you know, um, uh, archaeological sites, Blombos Caves and Pinnacle Point. And once I met and um, spoke to the different academic um, people involved with these digs and found the connection between the history of what the implication is of discovering, you know, the oldest works of art, um, the creative element of why we are human and the environment, which involves the availability and abundance of food, mainly captured not just shellfish, but the roots, the tubers and the berries of the boss that had literally been part of, you know, our survival story as a species. I just was blown away that nobody knew this. How can I be living here? And I didn't know this. And so the idea of how do I tell this story of a common heritage by, you know, somehow using what is available still today and the, mm. the, the heritage that had been maintained, you know, the medicinal plant, how to use it as part of the, the common knowledge that is still there um, in, in, uh, in the local community. And so, I started playing around. I, you know, thought I'd make perfumes from the fane boss and, and so on. And, and not, a, a long story short, I ended up, you know, the penny dropped at some point that um, to make a, a luxury spirit, like a, mm. a cognac or a whiskey, um, that could speak of a place and become synonymous with a place was the way to go. And so that's really where the idea started. And I worked with local um, retirees, which is always, I regard them as a, this in, incredibly valuable resource that nobody taps into. And willingly did they share with me, you know, what they knew and took me out into the felt, the botanists and so on and educated me. And so that was the beginning of it, experimenting with um, medicinal and culinary Fernbos plants until I understood it better and teaching myself to distill on a tiny little pot store. <clears throat> so, um, you know, when the two kind of came together, it took me three or four years of playing around with, you know, botanicals and understanding the art of distillation. And we ended up with, you know, in Varoche. That's in, in, in a nutshell. <laughs> and is that because obviously you didn't know that there were um, distilling. I mean, there weren't any, I guess, distilling schools and uh, mentors and and stuff. I mean, nowadays you can phone somebody and he'll whip out a, a recipe in in no time, and you pay him for that, and uh, it's done. Exactly. No, there was nothing. And you know, we spoke about this at the very beginning of the, this podcast. The, mm. the, 
the wonder of the internet. Had it not been for yeah. that, you know, I wouldn't be here because no, there was nobody. <clears throat> I beg your pardon. Um, it really, um, it was a very, very strange journey and very lonely in many ways. Um, yeah. It was only about two years into my my journey that I happened to um, meet another one of my my local um, uh, retirees who lived in Heidelberg, a gentleman by the name of Dave Acker who was a retired distiller, and he oh. was the father of the booth gyms, and he was then, I think, working with um, 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 and, and Odom Woolen, and the most gentle, you know, generous soul, and he started to take time out to, you know, guide my hand with where I was going, um, and, you know, help me with the finer points of what it takes to make, you know, an exquisite gin. So he was just, you know, it was a, another serendipitous um, meeting. Yeah. Um, and so there were, you know, there were a few people along the line that were pivotal in helping me stay on track and creating what we did. But on the whole, you know, it was a very lonely journey. There was yeah. nowhere to go. And and tell me about the name. In Barash, we made it up. Um, okay. I largely um, credit my, my son and daughter for their creative input on this. We mm -hmm. wanted to say a little bit about our own personal family history. We, we have both um, French as well as Scottish um, ancestors. So we made up the word to also say something about the element that sustains the entire Feinbos biome. And where we are is in the middle of the limestone region. So the word Inver is um, the Gaelic word for water or the confluence of water. Still, by is on the, or on the on the side of a, a river, the Choco, mouths out into the ocean. My kids, by the way, were all born in Inverness, so you know that gives you a clue. Yes. So Inver um, <laughs> is the water element, and and Roche is the French word for stone. So it's about the interaction between. Um, water and stone and the living rock that is very specific to that region retains water and releases it as the plants um, plants require it. So it sustains it through the terrible droughts and it's about that cycle of life, you know, releasing it and it grows into the plants, we consume it and it goes back again, you know. So that's the inspiration behind it, water and stone. Wonderful name. I mean, the, now that you mention it, Inverness is obviously, um, there must be a whiskey called Inverness and um, I think Inverness Cream there was. Um, but that's a wonderful story and it's, I mean, it's lovely when you can really create a, a brand like that. And um, and when did, uh, and the bottle, I have to ask you about the bottle because that's one of the biggest turtles in South Africa, isn't it? <laughs> and it remains as such, oh, oh. grief. And you know, I did try, you know, I, I went back to university um, during the time that I was um, in politics. I went to do a, um, a, a, a part of a, a postgrad at the Sustainability Institute at Stellenbosch. And so I did um, a number of modules to help me understand the future and clearly the, the recognition of the challenges that, that lie ahead of us. So, you know, I would, would have love to from the word go have been able to create a full circle economy with no waste and you know mm. a zero carbon footprint but my goodness the bottles available in south africa were just plain ugly mm. you know seriously if i wanted to 
do uh, make a product that was gorgeous and, you know, could sit like a bottle of Chanel perfume on a shelf. Mm. I had to get a bottle that would, you know, do that for me. And so I had to import and I still do because there's still no choices. Yeah. It's a big business opportunity here. For there's a choice between, I think it's called a 601 or a 701. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. It is. It is a massive problem, and I mean, it's obviously there's a new industry forming around importing gin bottles. I think. Um, yes. But uh, the design and everything is that uh, is that unique to you, or was it was it something no, off the it shelf? Is, it is just something off the shelf. Okay. But um, again, the the choice being made is that the, the the company that we we buy them from in France. Um, has uh, a sustainability range. So it mm. uses less glass, less energy, so it has a certification. But, of course, they still come all the way from France, and then mm. now we have to send them back again. You send you know? them back to France now. <laughs> yeah. so, so I thought you had arrived, Lorna, when I started getting endless inquiries online from Germany about this <laughs> Inveros. Oh. I don't know what okay. I did with the inquiries, but... I, I well, they must have worked because we do, you know, export to Germany now. So thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, got, I spoke to your your importer uh, maybe two months ago, and she said, oh, Yvonne. Mm. Yeah, she told me that she'd been following me on Facebook, and she started <laughs> <laughs> importing all the stuff that I was talking about. So, oh, that is so cool. So yeah, she created can... a little business around what what I was talking about in South Africa, not knowing, oh, I mean, awesome. and we had no um, contact whatsoever. <laughs> well, there you go again, the power of the, you know, of the, the internet, internet and making networks work for you. Yes. Yeah, true. You know, when you have truly arrived, and I say this with tongue-in-cheek because my oldest brother is a, when I take him to my local tops where we have 500 different beers, he says, I don't drink home brew. And mm-hmm. He doesn't. He he drives a Land Cruiser, or he drives two Land Cruisers, and he drinks Johnny Walker Black. So when I when I saw him the other day, he took out. He said, "Do you want a gin?" And normally I'm the one that brings the gins, and he took out a bottle of Tanqueray, and mm-hmm. then he took out a bottle of Inverosh. Oh yeah. <laughs> so if if it's in his if it's in his collection, then you know you've truly arrived because you're now on the same level as Johnny Walker Black and Land Cruiser. Oh, that makes me so good. Oh, thank you for sharing. <laughs> yeah, because oh, you're so funny. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And where to from now? Is 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 does rum play a part in this whole thing, or is it purely gin? No, we do have rum, um, but you know, my rum, I started making that before I made gin, and this is always an interesting little aspect to, mm. you know, why did we make rum? And it was really partly to to do with the fact that um, it was one way of me teaching myself how the whole process of um, fermentation and distillation okay. works. So, you know, I had um, I had to find, you know, that knowledge base. And so I got molasses and I went through the whole thing, sensing internet, you know, research. Mm-hmm. This is how you, you know, ferment molasses. And trial and error, and we ended up making rum and putting it in barrels and it sort of sat there. 
Um, and so we we made a limited amount. We did this for about three, four years. Um, and so that's it. So, you know, by the time it was ready, the first seven-year-old, um, um, we bottled all of that. And um, so the, the next release, which is our 10-year, which is now 10 years since we mm. made the, the first one, is limited to what we've made. So, and, and we've always only just really made that available at the brand home. Mm. Um, and we'll probably, you know, still do this. We've done it just available at a few select stores, but, um, it's, it was, um, it wasn't part of the main story. And yet it's also got a life of its own. You know, basically when I let people know that we're about to release, it sells out, you know, okay. we just sell out before. We actually release it at the at the brand home, so it's something to think about. Mm. But um, as I say, it it was um, it seems to be the the next possible spirit potential, you know. Yes. Rum. So, yeah. So Luna, I must apologise because we in the trade we said seven year old uh, rum. She hasn't even been around that long. Well, now she you bought know. it. At, she bought it at Odermolen. <laughs> no, no, I made it myself. With all that whole mess of, you know, melting the molasses with a big donkey outside in the garden. Oh, good grief! <laughs> but luckily, you know, as I say, um, that was done at the very beginning, even yes. before we did the the, um, the the gin. So now, now it's a dedicated gin distillery. We run rum schools, which are just really um, create spiced rums um, and that is just sort of one-offs by arrangement yeah. but yeah, you can again tell people um, the authenticity of the rum is also 100% made okay. it there with you know sticky molasses and um, they can come and see it they're still mm. the 10 year old is there it's all been blended and we bottle it as, um, as it gets ready Lorna, one one question which is obviously very controversial at the moment is this whole story of fake gin and colored gin and pink gin and red gin and all that stuff. What is what is and and my mission is really more about educating the the consumer rather than judging. Um, mm-hmm. How do we how do we educate the consumer about quality gin and how do they choose their gins? There is so much now, and how do we help the retailers not to shoot themselves in the foot by having neon gin? Or you know, the the only way is to educate through experience. Um, I find, and so my approach has been to start the gin schools, which I now mm. have. I've got gin schools in Mossel Bay. I run them uh, mobile Wanti and Cape Town at the brand home. I've got them in Joburg and we're looking further afield towards um, Sun City and mm. um, the, the game reserves as well. So through a gin school, people learn how, you know, a, a real gin should be made. So there is a, you know, two hour experience of learning everything about not just the history, but making gin properly with real botanicals infusing it, et cetera. So that's one way. And then, you know, again, spreading the word through disciples. But as far as the retailers are concerned, you have the challenge also of how do you educate them. And I think the only way to really do that is through inviting them in my case. I do. I bring in um, not just the mixologists and the restaurant owners and chefs, but we also invite retailers to come along so that we can educate them. Mm. Um, and the alternative is just to do tastings. You know, when everything is said and done, the proof of the pudding, huh? 
you know, put two gins next to each other, one which has just been flavored with a, a ready mix or colored with an artificial pink thing mm. or blues and, and, and um, let them taste, uh, you know, an authentic infused with real botanicals gin versus one that is not. And um, they will know. That's my only advice. Yeah, and the, because the the liquor authorities or, or DAF or whoever controls this thing, I mean, they obviously also caught a little bit off guard with this whole gin explosion and this, mm. this fight. And my friends at Distalik are saying they're working on on trying to rewrite the legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I want to use an example when. Five or eight years ago, we had a, a brand. We we had a flavored tequila. It was called Ariba Bubblegum Tequila, and obviously there was no tequila in it. So, but but we created <laughs> we created okay. this perception of having a bubblegum tequila. But all we in the end, what we did when when we got confronted is we just dropped the name tequila and we just called it Ariba Bubblegum, and oh, the perception the perception was still that it was a tequila. And I guess. I have seen some gins where where the brand is stronger than the the category, so they just call it by its name, and you know they That's drop true. the word gin. But people aren't really the general consumer aren't really educated mm. to understand the the words on the labels as defining the the product for what it is, and it's only in America that you are required to declare your process. Okay. As well as all your ingredients, and you know, maybe that's a step forward. Yeah. If people were to not that you need to give away your recipe, yes. but at least if you work with the core elements, like you know, are there artificial colorants? Are there artificial flavorants being used? And even if they're nature identical, they're still not you know real botanicals. Yeah. So you know, by definition, perhaps there's a middle road to um, protect proprietary information about the the actual botanicals or you know the specifics around it, but at least be um, you know not um, forced but encouraged to to um, declare, and somehow there's got to be a you know checks and balances from some authority to make sure that that is the case. Because just willingly joining um, an organization like a, a guild or something doesn't mean anything. No. You know, there's no oversight that would give the kind of assurance that the consumer could then trust. Yeah. So maybe that's a, a, another route to go. Okay. And um, so just, just mention again, you said something about a brand home. Is that in Cape Town? No, I've got, um, what I have is I have an arrangement with a number of the um, more prominent bars and so on where we run little gin schools. We've got a little mobile distilling, like we've just done last night, for example, at the Element House. We've done it at the one and only. Um, So we come along and we um, have a group of people. They all work together. We design recipes, et cetera, and then you make the gin right there because it's a little mini, mini mobile stall. And we do the whole, you know, thing. So it's it's a mobile facility that we've got arrangements with um, select clients. But the the permanent uh, gin schools that we run, of course, are at our brand home in Stolby. Mm-hmm. And we've got uh, one at the Gannett in uh, Mossel Bay. And then, mm-hmm. um, and, and as I said, the others are still in, in process, but will will be open soon. Okay. And uh, tips for for 
startup people, people starting brands, one of the things that I always tell uh, craft spirit owners or brand owners is that they mustn't grow too fast. They mustn't grow faster as faster than they can reach or, or communicate or, or um, retain retain that control because the last thing you want to do is to create the demand and mm. then are not able to supply. I think in my case it was definitely an an, an organic process mm. and we always focused on the local market as primary. So um, you know, advice as far as don't grow too fast is make mm. sure that as you you know invest your energy in the in the awareness or your your demand side that you're able to supply. Make sure that you've got, in my case, you know, I had to invest quite a lot of time and effort to develop the, the Fainboss supply. Okay. That was my biggest challenge in doing it ourselves. Because you're not so, just foraging for it. Yeah, you know, you can't. I mean, it's, there are too many rules and regulations and the controlled conditions that means that there's no pressure on the natural environment which is also in line with the requirements from nature mm. is that I literally grow them in, in a nursery. You know, I have several um, areas where we grow them and we also harvest and work with farmers that um, have some of the, the other, that they already supply to other industries, you know, medicinal industries and so on. So we buy from them. So they're all certified, but the key ones we just grow in our own nurseries. Okay. So there's no, um, you know, there's no issue on, wild foraging because the volumes that we do simply couldn't sustain that and you couldn't do it with Cape Nature's um, rules anyway. I see that you you wrote somewhere in 2017 you want to build a global brand, which you're obviously well on your way um, to achieve now. In how many countries are you now? We're already in 18 that we supply directly, but I think there probably, we did a count the other day, there are probably about another four or five that are indirect. For example, Yvonne, you know, Germany also looks, she sends out to some of the neighboring countries. Um, But it's it's still small. You know, I work with small um, agents Mm. and people that are, Still, you know, specializing in, um, you know, either have a, a, a liquor store or a restaurant or something, and then it grows slowly through through that, and that's been good for me. So we were able to develop that kind of awareness um, without going too big too quickly, as you quite rightly said mm-hmm. earlier. Um, and now we can do it in a more planned way with the support of, of Perno. So. And Cerno will support all of my, you know, ventures that are already in place. So there's well, no no issues with that. Okay, so it won't automatically go into the Puno stable. Not at all. You know, it's my choice. Okay. And um, ultimately, any new um, ventures into new countries will work with Puno to to do, you know, to launch that, yeah. but under my direction. But in South Africa, is it moving across to the Puno distribution? No, we're staying. What you know, nothing's oh. going to change, right? And right, and things as business as usual. You know. Okay. So, um, as I said at the very beginning, for me, the whole process has got to be beneficial for everybody who yeah. helped me to to grow the brand, and I'd like that to um, you know be part of our philosophy. So, mm. you know, like the likes of Yvonne that we've already mentioned, mm. um, we'll start conversations and see how we can support it through the bigger network that I have access to 
so that everybody benefits. Okay. That's my approach to all of this. Wonderful. So I wish you good luck, and I hope that uh, it's a smooth transition, and that it's uh, that you still have a lot of joy and uh, a lot of <laughs> yeah, that the benefits. Uh, exceed the the possible problems <laughs> <laughs> i certainly hope so and uh, i will do my best to you know make sure that the the conversation continues and that the that we spread the word that you know we make good things in africa and things that come out of south africa can sit as you mentioned earlier next to your jo- johnny walker black <laughs> and uh, and take um and be proud to represent who we are now so yeah. but thank you for talking to me and um, letting me share my story with you. It's wonderful. Thank you. That was Lorna Scott from Inverosh. And uh, the news is that Pernod Ricard did an investment in the brand and the distillery. Thank you, Lorna, and good luck to you. Thank you, Holger. Have a nice day as well <laughs> to you. Cheers. Bye-bye now. Bye.